Hey guys, I'm Adam Rapport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, uh, first up, we are still recording remotely, obviously. I'm awaiting professional-grade equipment to make our podcast sound as awesome as they usually do, so bear with me as the uh, the pieces arrive via Amazon, like kind of day by day. Pretty soon, we'll have our own proper remote studio. In the meantime, uh, this week, we are checking in with contributing writer Priya Krishna, who's also in a remote location, uh, that it, but that is not her apartment in New York City. Um, she has some interesting travel uh, adventures. Um, so we are seeing how Priya is doing. Uh, and then uh, we're airing an episode we taped in studio in New York a few weeks back with Andy Barragani uh, about the recipes he developed for a story in our March issue that is all about cooking with more acid. All right, here we go with Priya Krishna. Priya Krishna, how are you? I'm doing okay. Just like living like I'm in high school again at my parents' house. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's the more important follow-up question. Where <laughs> are you? I'm in Dallas. I came here a little while ago for my dad's birthday and for a wedding, and then I didn't leave. Yeah, so explain when you traveled there. And I know when we were at work, you were debating, should I go? Should I go? Is that point when the coronavirus was starting to escalate that it was unclear whether or not to travel and what was your thought process and how did you decide to go? Yeah, I mean, like we were getting so little information as to whether travel was okay, not okay at that time. It was, let's see, it was Wednesday the 11th. Yeah, I think that was Wednesday. Yeah. And so it was supposed to be my boyfriend, Seth, my sister and her husband, my sister and husband live in London. And so they were like, international travel seems like a definite no-go. So they canceled their trip. And then uh, Seth was supposed to come on Friday. And then basically what happened was I took off on Wednesday. By the time I landed, the travel ban had happened. Tom Hanks had coronavirus. The NBA season had been canceled all in the course of my flight. That was like the most active like day on Twitter. Everything just happened at once. And it was like, oh my God. And that's, I think, when the coronavirus really obviously, people were like, oh, this is enormous to our lives. And I, I basically landed in Dallas at that moment. And I remember looking at my phone, having like 20 text messages and being like, I may not be going home for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so are you like literally sleeping in your high school bedroom? Yeah, I'm in my high school bedroom right now because. I'm worried that my dad is going to come upstairs and yell something that interferes with this podcast recording. (laughs) Just like hiding in my room as I used to do. I'm literally doing my work from my desk that I did my high school homework from. And the other day I called it homework and my mom had to remind me that like, this is my job. I'm not doing homework. (laughs) Oh my God. So yeah, if you follow Priya on Instagram, which is at pkgourmet, um, you will notice that uh, you do a lot of cooking with your parents, um, both your mom and dad. So how has that been going? Like, wh- how do you divide up the turf in the kitchen? Who's in charge? Who's the chef? Who are the sous chefs? How does this all work? I mean, I'm definitely not in charge. Like, I've <laughs> tried to cook. And the only time my mom let me cook is when I had to cook because we were filming video for, like, the, the test kitchen video. Other than that, my mom has taken full control and we basically assumed our duties. It was my job to set the table and like clean all of our surfaces. And I just like reverted into that mode. I set the table, 
I like clean the counter off. My dad does the chopping and the dishes and my mom is sort of the captain. You're like fully (laughs) in seventh grade again. I, I am fully in seventh grade. I'm even like, I don't have any books to read. So I'm reading like the young adult novels on my oh bookshelf. <laughs> okay, so it's interesting. So your father, who has um, appeared in your videos on the Bonham YouTube feed, is uh, kind of like a FaceTime presence. What's his and your mom's relationships in terms of kitchen mates? Is, is he her helper? Does he cook his own dishes that he likes to make? How does that work? He's definitely the helper. He chops. He's really, really great at chopping. He even, he like sharpens his <laughs> knife before every use. Like he's very legit as a chopper. He does all of the dishes and he's very particular. He has a specific way he cleans all the wine glasses. Like he has a system. I appreciate it. And he'll do his own cooking during the day. Like he makes bread, he makes our yogurt. So he'll do that during the day. But like starting around five o'clock, it's my mom's domain and kind of no questions asked. Can talk, Let's talk about a few of the dishes um, that you've cooked since you've been home and you've shared on your Instagram stories and the kind of the ones that have been your favorites and, and maybe why they're your favorites. I mean, the first thing I asked my mom to cook when I got here was gardi, which is this dish that I just did a video for. We just released a recipe for. And as soon as we released the recipes, I was getting tagged like every day and like, 10 to 20 new posts of people making it. And I was just getting extremely hungry. And (laughs) it is like, I don't think we planned for this, but it is a really pantry friendly dish in that it's just spices, yogurt, chickpea flour. You don't need any fresh produce. You eat it over rice. It's very comforting. Do you describe it as a soup, as a sauce? Like how do you put it into context for someone who hasn't had it before? (laughs) I mean, I feel like I describe it as a soup and every brown person on the internet got so angry with me so i i don't even want to classify it it's beyond classification i'll call it <laughs> like cozy blanket in uh in the it's like it's like a soup meets a sauce uh-huh. meets like a gravy it's like a yeah, coating yeah. for white rice basically um but it's served serve cold or hot it's served hot yeah um i remember having it in the test kitchen a it's it's one of those I I hate to say it, but in this Instagram age that we live in, it's an incredibly photogenic dish. Mm -hmm. Like the swirls of of that sort of really bright yellowy orange. And it's just like, oh my God, like it's just asking for that overhead shot. I love how bright and tangy it is flavor wise. Yeah, it's so, it's, it's so good. And honestly, like my mom's version reminded me that when I cook something in the test kitchen, I'll get 90% of the way there, but there's like that 10% of mom magic. What do you, what do you think she does maybe that you didn't do when you were doing it yourself? What is, what is, can you put your finger on what that mom technique is? Cause I think we all know it. Anytime my mom cooks something like, why does this have like 15% more flavor than when I do it? Is it just salt or like, what is, what does mom do that I'm not doing? It's not salt. It's not cook time. It's the exact same way that I make it, but somehow hers is better. I truly have, like, I I could not put my finger on what my mom does that's different. I think she just has the intuition of having made this for so many years, whereas I turn the heat up to high, set the timer, and then, like, walk away and come back, whereas my mom is sort of tending to it and not setting any timers and sort of it's done when she says it's done kind of thing. Can you spell the recipe so people can search for it? K-A-D-H-I. Yeah, and it's on bonappetit.com right now. And you just go to the recipe section and you'll find it there. And that's kind of like a nice 
flavorful vegetarian vegetable sort of option. Are you more of a meat family or a fish family? Would you say? We are a vegetarian family, so I basically so just okay. Yeah, so I basically just like adjusted to life as a one hundred percent vegetarian, which has been very interesting. Yeah, what is that like? Because that's something that obviously people who some there are people who sometimes like are not vegetarian, but then they start dating someone who's a vegetarian, and all of a sudden their diet changes very much. <laughs> has it been difficult or is it one of those things like after a while you're like oh I don't even miss meat anymore or do you have cravings I mean I was vegetarian for the first like 21 years of my life oh. so okay good, good I've, sidebar I've always said like if you told me I couldn't eat meat anymore I would not feel I would not miss it and that's kind of been my experience here it's been really easy to fall back into this routine of not eating meat and even at my apartment in New York I uh basically created a rule for my boyfriend and me we don't cook meat at home anymore like oh, with rare exceptions just you know it's like restaurants do it better and we felt like it was better for the environment for us to just do our part and cook mostly vegetarian at home and so that part has been really easy to adjust to it's always funny when people cook like pitch like vegetarian packages for the magazine like oh now that we're all quarantining we're eating vegetarian i'm just like that's just my state of being. <laughs> One thing that was, was dawning on me this weekend as I was um, trying to think about what to write for my newsletter that I have to owe our producer, Emma, uh, end of day today, <laughs> and I still haven't written yet, Emma, sorry. Yeah, we, we are now a nation of home cooks. And so you mentioned about cooking, not cooking meat, eating it only if you go out. Right now, none of us are going out. Yeah. Um, and what has that been like, being at home, in your high school bedroom with your parents eating three meals a day at home and not being able to go out? I think I had to create boundaries, which was important. <laughs> like, I think that was sort of the first thing we talked about when I was like, I'm going to be here for a while, which is like, I'll take my breakfast and lunch on my own time and we don't have to eat all these meals together. Yeah. Did you communicate that to your parents or did that just kind of happen? Yeah, I did. I was, I explicitly talked about it with them. Like, we're going to go insane if we try and do everything together. So we need to accept our alone time. I also try really hard to get out of the house once a day. I will like download an episode of a podcast and just take a bunch of laps around my neighborhood listening to it. And sometimes I run into my dad or my mom on their walk and I'll do like one lap <laughs> with them. But you don't, you don't pretend like you don't see them. You just kind of walk by them or just, <laughs> what's up, sort of uh, head nod. <laughs> I do have to say there's a guy who lives down the street or his parents live down the streets. It's like this guy I had a huge crush on in high school and his parents walk their dogs whenever I go for my walk. And I like still feel like re residually high school embarrassed seeing oh them. My God. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what, no, I do think that's important for all of us now as we sort of adapt to this at home lifestyle is establishing some sort of schedule. And we were talking about that on the work front that it's important to take a work break because otherwise you can just be in Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting and doing this mm -hmm. and that. I think it's important on the professional level. It's also important with your spouse or mate or kids or whatever that there is some sort of structure to your day because the hours can just bleed together otherwise. And I, I think mm -hmm. that's great advice, sort of setting some parameters and being explicit about it um, is great. What is what is your mom's, you know, we talk a lot about pantries right now in the, in the food business, especially this past week that we're all at home um, and things you can just reach for. As a home cook, 
What is your mom's pantry like compared to your pantry back in New York? I didn't realize this until I came home. It's exactly the same. I have subconsciously modeled my pantry after my mother's. Like, it's crazy. I didn't, (laughs) I did not anticipate this happening, but I came home and I was like, oh, my staples are exactly the same. This is like being in my own pantry minus like my boyfriend's baking equipment. As a uh, Indian-ish cook, and that's the name of uh, Priya's cookbook, if you guys want to go buy it, uh, Indian-ish, you can order it online now. Thanks, Adam. Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, always pitching. When you say staples, when, what staples pop to mind? Lentils, like 10 varieties of lentils in our house oh. at any time. Varieties of lentils. I think, so right now there's so much bean talk on the internet and there's a lot of attention paid to different types of beans from the gigante ones to those flagellates, all these different types. When you think about types of lentils, what are the main different types of lentils you think about and what do you, what do you use each for? If you want to give me like three examples. Yeah. So I think of lentils sort of in terms of thin to thick with like the thin ones being uh, sort of the, the quick cooking, easy, soupy ones, the thick ones being uh, the sort of more buttery, a little bit more texture heft, maybe a bit more versatile lentils. So Usually at the end of the spectrum, you've got pink lentils, super thin. You can find them at most grocery stores. I love the Goya brand. Um, Okay. And those cook in like five to seven minutes. You can throw them into a dal. You can use them to add heft to a soup. They're just, they're my like, you know, I'm starving. I have no time. I need food now. Um, In the middle, there's, yeah, go ahead. No, raising my (laughs) hand on Zoom. Do you just, in terms of cooking five to seven minutes, are you just throwing them in boiling salted water? I put them in like about three to four cups of water, um, a spoonful of turmeric, a spoonful of salt, and then I just let them cook. And then I'll temper some spices and ghee and throw that on top as a finisher. That's kind of my go-to. But if you're already cooking a soup and you just want to cook the lentils directly into the soup to add just like a little bit of texture, a little more to make them a bit more filling, this is a perfect candidate for that because you can put them in right at the end of cooking and they'll cook super fast, like kind of like putting rice noodles in soup. Oh, so you're saying you'll put the dried lentils directly into the soup for the, and let them cook for the five to seven minutes in the hot broth. Yeah. They cook so, they just cook so fast. You don't have to worry about them. Yeah. So make more of a quote unquote meal out of the soup. Yeah, exactly. And, And yeah, they're just so thin and quick cooking. They, they can do that. And you don't even have to, you don't have to plan ahead. You can just be like, oh, this is looking kind of soupy or it's kind of liquidy. Maybe I want a little more texture. I also love uh, mung beans, which are sort of those green and white beans, and you can use them to make uh, kitchari, which is a sort of, what would I call it? God, I hate when I have to classify. It's like a porridge <laughs> uh-huh. type of a dish where you cook the lentils and the rice in the same pot, and it sort of creates this really wonderful, starchy, pot liquory, like delicious porridge. Um, and those kind of those cook for a medium amount of time. I think we do like ten to fifteen minutes on those, and those have a really nice like like soft mush that just feels very satisfying in your mouth. They have a lot of texture on the outside. Um, they have a shell that comes out. It's just they they feel very nutritious when you eat them. They don't taste like rabbit food at the same time. They've got a <laughs> taste. They have this, this like nice earthy taste unto themselves. Can you um, can you spell kidri? K-H-I-C-H-D-I. I feel like it, one of the things that drives me crazy when people pronounce it like kichari, it's kitri. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we're doing a podcast so you can hear that. Okay, before we let you go, um, 
is your house a, a dessert house? It is not, but I'm making it a dessert house. That is something <laughs> oh. that I am do because literally my parents eat it's it's insane. We have a bar of chocolate in the fridge and a bar of chocolate in the pantry because my mom likes room temperature chocolate and my dad likes cold chocolate and oh. that's what they eat for dessert. And I was like, this is ridiculous. So I found pie dough in the freezer that my boyfriend Seth had left last Thanksgiving and I made a pie this weekend. And it was like, I could breathe again. We were eating real dessert. <laughs> oh, real dessert. What kind of pie did you make? I made this uh, 4 and 20 Blackbirds salted caramel apple pie, but then I oh, made like an oat yeah. crust on top because we didn't have enough pie dough. It was really good. So yeah, so Priya's partner, Seth, is quite the baker. Um, did you FaceTime with him to get any sort of baking tips as you were making it? Yeah, actually, I used the tripod that the BA video team sent me to film our videos and just put my phone there. And it was like being in a virtual baking class. He was telling me like, no, that dough's too thick. You need to roll it out this way. You've got like a hole there. He was like literally giving me live advice. That's like, you can, mo you can monetize this, Seth. <laughs> I'm about to say, um, just because like, yeah, pie dough is one of those things when you read about it in a recipe, they're like, oh, do it until it's a texture of this. But you, you don't really know unless you know and having someone coach you through it i imagine must be super helpful speaking of videos uh for the ba youtube feed i think we have our first sort of at home introductory videos going up this friday and then next week we'll start rolling out the videos that you and andy and molly and everyone else have shot in their own home kitchens that i think the quality is going to be surprisingly good at least that's my feeling <laughs> We'll see. I feel like my thought the entire time I was shooting this was like, oh man, we are all so bad at tech and the video team must think we are just like idiots. <laughs> no, it makes, it makes you charming. Uh, <laughs> just because I know you're, there's a lot of fans of, of your dad out there on videos. Is, does he make an appearance in this video? He makes a lot of appearances. <laughs> Whether I've asked him to be in the video or not, he kind of just pops in. Um, we might have to get him to, uh, sign up for the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, Priya Krishna, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and good luck in Dallas. Thank you. Andy Baragani, I feel like as home cooks, we often talk about seasoning. Is the dish well seasoned? We never talk about acid. No, we don't. We don't. And uh, that's why we ended up doing a one of my now, I think might be one of my favorite stories I've ever worked on, a story of how we need to be using more acid in the kitchen. For the home cook, what does that mean? That means, well, acid comes from a lot of different things. I think a lot of people right off the bat, they think uh, they think of citrus, they think of vinegars, but the reality is uh, acid can come from dried fruit or dried shrubs like barberries, uh, sumac, tamarind. These are all different forms of acid that will um, make your mouth pucker. And I, I, I do hear it a lot, like professional chefs. I've always liked that notion. You, you see like a line cook with their tasting spoons and they taste something and there's like, needs more acid and they mm -mm. walk away. Well, I find that like, imagine like you use salt to really extract the flavor from ingredients and uh, fat carries flavor. Acid does this thing where it really provides balance, you know, it makes a dish uh, more well-rounded, I find. I find it kind of wakes up a dish. Absolutely, it brings it back to life, like, yeah. a, like a slow cooked uh, braised uh, short ribs or lamb shoulder or a fatty piece of steak. You know, I don't want uh, a big bone in ribeye with like so much excess butter on top. I almost want like a little bit of a splash of vinegar. 
Yeah. All right, before we get into your story, needs more acid, and these delicious recipes in the March issue of Mon Appetit, give me some basic tips about how to incorporate more acid into my home cooking in ways that I might not be thinking about other than just a, a lemon wedge. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say like in the most basic form, it's like you when you're making a salad, I think old school method of like doing the four to one ratio of three to one a three to one ratio is it three to one it's three to one oil to oil, oil to, to acid bit. which i think is insane that is insane it's just so fatty so fatty i would play around with adjusting that uh vinegars are definitely more sharper and more acidic like they vary between vinegars uh rice vinegars are a lot more delicate than let's say a sherry vinegar or a red wine mm-hmm. lemons are have a high ph level so it can be very very acidic I like to do, yeah, I'm probably like at a one-to-one ratio now. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I like a lot of acid in my dressings. I also, one of our salad stories we did, maybe it was Jody Williams and Rita Sodi from their bunch of restaurants over in the West Village. I think they mentioned um, using a variety of acids, not just one vinegar, but do some lemon juice and a rice wine vinegar or red wine like mix it up a little bit get get a little complexity in there and i always like to do shallots and the shallots take on a nice pickled element when you just let them soak with the acid mm-hmm. and maybe a little sugar or salt that was definitely that was one of my rules from a while back uh, on the podcast of like my 10 kitchen 10 cooking rules is combining different acids oh i'm sorry so you're taking ownership of this, uh, yes this, this <laughs> is not jody williams <laughs> That was definitely a tip on uh, my 10 cooking tips. I do think like combining whether it's like a little bit of sherry with a little bit of lemon juice or grapefruit with rice vinegar, it does, it makes a more interesting, complex dressing overall. You mentioned like um, having a ribeye steak. Sometimes like you'll see, I know like in some Italian restaurants, I don't know, I feel like it's a very 2000s thing. You get like the charred sliced you know ribeye aged ribeye and then they'll do like the little drizzle of aged balsamic on there for that sort of like sweet acidic thing which i'm like okay you know what i'd rather have give me the charred juicy well marbled ribeye with some malt and salt and then a really acidic sort of vegetables or side salad on the side of like fresh you know whether it's shaved fennel or grapefruit or this or that like something that puckers to play off that richness absolutely give me like i mean i love having like a crunchy salad to go on uh, a fatty piece of meat whether it's like a pickled salad which is included in the magazine or just like a, a charmoula or salsa verde or a mesco that is like uh, packed with uh, good citrus and vinegar. What do, what do you define a charmoula as? Charmoula is a North African condiment traditionally usually served with seafood but I think it's a sauce that can go with or a sauce and marinade that can go with a lot of different things. I would treat it treat it like any other green sauce to be honest. I had a delicious one by our chef friend, Gerardo Gonzalez, who made a uh, tomatillo charmula um, that was so good. So let, let's talk about some of these recipes and how you incorporate acid. Um, I'm staring right now at the pasta with brown butter, whole lemon, and parmesan. Mm-hmm. Did you have to email Allison Roman to get permission to use the whole the whole lemon? I'm, I don't think I'm going to give anybody credit for the whole lemon. You're not giving anyone credit for anything. <laughs> no, well, the whole lemon thing, I think, like— I don't know. I, I don't. Gonna, people, people don't own lemons. Well, I don't know. I'm going to text Alex and see what she says. <laughs> I only have love for her, so it's fine. I always think lemon juice, whole lemon. How does that make this dish more complex or interesting than a squirt of lemon juice? Well, I've, look, I've done a lot of uh, pasta recipes. Some have had lemon juice. Some have had lemon zest. Some have had both. And the juice provides. Uh, that acidic puckery flavor the zest provides this kind of 
almost like sweet floral note. Yeah, but more, you, more zest is more fragrant than anything. Absolutely, which definitely is really more nice. fragrant. When you use the whole lemon like you're doing here, where you're cutting it into rounds and kind of caramelizing it in butter, in brown butter to be exact, you get all of that plus the bitterness from the pith, which I find kind of make it a little bit more more adult, more mature. Bitter is that kind of flavor that, you know, is misunderstood. But but it's kind of like a bittersweet because it does caramelize and you slice it, the, the you slice them crosswise really thin. Yes, and also the, the butter itself does kind of cut the bitterness from yeah. it. You make sure to get rid of the seeds, right? A hundred, you have to. I, what I like about this dish, and it was delicious during tastings, was sometimes you get those, um, like in a lot of Italian restaurants, you get those sort of like pumpkin ravioli and the brown butter, and it's yeah. so rich and so sweet. You want something acidic, or you want something a little bitter to balance all that brown butter. It also, I find like those dishes, while I've enjoyed them in the past, they only tend to have like one texture. And with this, you have, you're using, it just pasta, salt, lemons, butter, and Parmesan and pepper. And you get the like, obviously the al dente pasta, this beautifully emulsified sauce, but then you get this kind of caramelized, slightly chewy lemon mm -hmm. and the kind of powdery Parmesan to finish. Um, you have a sidebar on sort of other acids that aren't lemons and, and vinegar. Um, your Persian background. I went to a Persian Hanukkah celebration of sorts. Oh, <laughs> and um, dried lime. It was in, what's the dish? It was a stew with like a, tons of greens and some mm -hmm. braised it's, chicken. It's it's called Gorma Sabzi. Yes. Typically made with red meat, but mm -hmm. it is definitely, there are vari variations and you could make it, use a chicken, but it has dried limes in it. And yeah. the dried limes, I was like, whoa, you take, you're like, what was that? You it's don't want to bite into it. Okay, well, I did. No, no, no. Because <laughs> yeah. they're incredibly bitter and astringent <laughs> no, and I, musky. <laughs> yeah. So you avoid them, but they infuse the dish with their certain something, something. So dried limes, typically they're, they're seasoned with salt and then set out to kind of shriveled uh, out in the sun. And they come in different colors from kind of a paler, almost beige color to a brown, uh, which is my favorite, and then to a very, very dark, almost black. And the darker it gets, the more stringent, uh, astringent, uh, musky, and um, it can have. And so when it's in a stew or a soup, it sort of releases its flavors into the liquid? Yeah, I prick it a little bit with like a paring knife, and then I add it to a stew or a braise or a soup. And then uh, while it goes, I kind of just push it down to kind of get all the kind of uh, all that flavor out of it and then throw it away. Speaking of soups, this is my favorite uh, dish in this story. <laughs> Grains in herby buttermilk. And this photo is just like mesmerizing. Um, just the greenest of green, frothy sort of milky substance with these like uh, sort of like farro poking through and a little drizzle of oil and. I knew exactly so what I wanted. How this this is a dish where I knew exactly how I wanted it to look like. I just didn't know how the how flavor would be. Okay. I really didn't know. I was like, uh, it kind of visually. I knew I wanted this kind of bright green broth, uh, and I wanted the grains kind of floating and like a little pools of oil. My reference was a soup that is made with yogurt, you'll see around the Middle East, called soupe must, must means yogurt in, in Farsi, and you'll see people when they're incorporating uh, yogurt into soups, hot soups to be exact, they'll, add, they'll whisk the yogurt with a little bit of egg and a little bit of flour so that hmm. it doesn't split and become grainy. I didn't do that in this case. Instead, I pureed 
uh, a lot of herbs to get that green color. Yeah, you and call I'm, for uh, one cup of dill fronds and one and a half cups of parsley leaves. Yeah, they, part of the parsley definitely helps with the color. And then I did a combination of uh, two dairy products, the yogurt Question. and— Question. Yes. How packed or not packed should a cup be when we talk about a cup? I, I don't pack it hard. Mm-hmm. I just—I do the—because if, if that was the case, then I would specify. I think we cut the whole, like— Loosely packed or packed I because of you. <laughs> don't try to turn around on me. It's, it's served hot, cold. It's, it's, Is it room temp? It's, How do you see it? It's served hot, but mm. you can have it room temp. It and looks like a good summer soup. It can definitely be a cool, good summer yeah. soup. You could chill the broth before you add the yogurt and buttermilk and just add it uh, once it's cold and have like a nice summer soup. So, yeah, so it's four cups of water with the onion and garlic, lemon zest, all the herbs. Mm-hmm. And so then that thins out all the buttermilk and yogurt. Exactly. Yeah, I just found it such a refreshing, but also, I mean, healthy-ish, but because it's got all that buttermilk and yogurt, there's still a richness to it. There's still a richness. Originally, I was just going to use buttermilk, but I found that the consistency would to be a little bit too thin. So the yogurt yeah. gave it a little bit more body. Yeah, and I think, yeah it, it made it satisfying. Apparently, you want me to talk about the whole tamarind-glazed black bass with coconut herb salad. Yeah, I I really love this dish. I mean, I love this dish, but Molly, when she tasted it, she's like, this might be one of my favorite things you that's, that you've developed. And I kind of, that hurt my feelings. <laughs> what are you, you hurt? That's so you. It's like, I know. I was just like, really? Like, I, But it is a very, um, it's a very easy dish for someone who's never cooked whole fish before uh-huh. i mean i would i would say it, it, like you're using a kind of a maybe an ingredient that you're not too familiar with which is a tamarind concentrate uh tamarind is an item that comes like in a pod and you could buy it and just kind of suck on it and then just kind of toss out the seeds but you'll also see it in um in like a block form that's a pulp you'll see it in jars where it's like a syrup a thick almost molasses like yep. It can be incredibly tangy to actually kind of sweet and and fruity. Uh, In this case, I made a glaze with caramelized tomato paste, uh, garlic, honey, add uh, add some sweetness, and tamarind. And you sort of, it's almost like the the fish, the whole fish on a sheet tray, they look almost like shellacked. Yeah, yeah. And then festooned with all this coconut and red chilies on there and little mint leaves. Yeah, I wanted it to be festive and I wanted to be kind of like... When you roast the fish, I wanted this uh, tamarind glaze to get really sticky and just concentrated. And then I just want to kind of add a lot of texture to it in the form of crispy shallots, uh, toasted coconut, uh, mint leaves, and the chilies, and obviously more acid in the form of lime wedges. And you sort of score the fish before roasting, and then as once it's done, you just sort of pull it off the bone, and that glaze mixes in with the flesh, and it's yeah. delicious. What do we—I feel like— should I be using more tomato paste in my life? I don't. I don't know if I should. I think you should. I mean, I'm definitely someone who like I'm. I love tomato paste. I find that like um, you just have to cook it out properly. Yeah, explain that. That means that when you're adding, whether it's a tablespoon or you're doing, uh, let's say, BA's best bolognese, which I think called for like. A third of a cup or a half did a cup. Did you develop that recipe? I actually did develop that mm, recipe. Okay, sure. Uh, but you really want to cook it out until the tomato paste darkens like a shade or two, and it begins to stick to the bottom of the pot. You want to remove any of that kind of tinny flavor yeah. you get, just like you would with a can of, let's say, whole um, whole peeled tomatoes. 
And that sort of adds a kind of a nice base note to like it's, a stew or something, yeah, or it, maybe a sauce. I got interesting. Molly, Boz, and I were developing a top secret BA's best recipe. Uh-huh. There was we were making tomato sauce, and it was interesting doing just the canned crushed tomatoes with a little olive oil and garlic, and then the canned crushed tomatoes with olive oil and garlic, but starting it with the tomato paste first. Which one did you like more? It depends. I mean, it depends what the dish is. I generally like a really sort of fresh tomato then sauce. You wouldn't it, want the and fish. I don't mean like fresh tomatoes, but I mean canned tomatoes that are crushed and just really simply just warmed up with olive oil and maybe a little garlic. So I don't love that tomato pasting. But certain dishes, as you said, if it is a earthier, richer, beefier dish, then you actually do want that. So I think a lot of it depends on what it is you're looking for and what it is you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. I think it does give you that kind of depth that it has that, uh, it tricks you into thinking the sauce or the dish has been cooking for hours upon hours. Apparently, America loves chicken for dinner. So last recipe. Oh, yeah, I've got some charred citrus in this recipe also. Yeah. Tangy vinegar chicken with barberries and orange. Very pretty dish. It's a very, I, I do love this. And this is, I mean, very much a dish that I grew up with, with some variation. Uh, this is kind of like the chicken you would have with a rice dish. It's a rice dish ma- mixed with um, barberries. So you see the barberries in the rice with butter, and it's oh, it's called zedish. Zedish means barberry, so zedish polo. And you have a chicken to go along with it. And the chicken usually has like turmeric, onions. You might sneak some barberries in there, and it's just like has a very s- savory earthy note to it not necessarily as acidic as this dish this dish it does while it looks like that chicken that i'm talking about it has the addition of vinegar and i think a lot of people are familiar with like vinegar chicken where you're kind of cooking chicken slowly or marinating the chicken vinegar um and it has a really kind of bright acidic uh uh taste to it with this it's a little more balanced with like the sweetness of orange juice I think there's a little bit of sugar and the earthiness of turmeric all kind of combined together and slowly braised also with something like vinegar if you're starting with vinegar as it cooks the vinegar kind of leans more sweet than acidic eventually or as opposed no. to a splash at the end let's say i think there's half a cup of um vinegar in this is that correct that is yeah a third of a cup white wine vinegar so the pH level is never going to change, mm-hmm. but it's going to get less acidic because not so much that it's reducing, but more that you're adding sweetness from the orange juice, you're adding uh, turmeric, and these are qualities that are kind of tame the acidity. Gotcha. Going back to barberries, you mentioned, you say half cup dried barberries or dried tart cherries. Yes. And I mean, look, I- I'll fully admit, like, they're two wildly different things. Barberries are quite acidic, are very, very tart. And while uh, sour cherries are tart, they're not nearly as tart. But um, I find that it would be a great, um, a welcome addition as well. If you and look for barberries, where will the shopper typically find them? Obviously, you can order and online like you could anything these days but uh, I would go to look for a Middle Eastern market uh, you'll see barberries in uh, used in a lot of different uh, Middle Eastern countries or Middle Eastern cuisines and uh, Central Europe Eastern Europe any online market you recommend when people are looking for ingredients like barberries or in, uh, good quality spices I mean uh, I would look into burlap and barrel I think they ship at this point and they're doing some just an incredible job at bringing um, 
some really unique spices and all kinds of stuff over. But uh, maybe maybe Sahadi ships out in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. Andy Bergani needs more acid in the March issue of Bon Appetit. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartsman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Namine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.